I'm Alejandra Melian. I'm Daniel Chu Castillo. And I'm Riley Bertensini. Welcome to Talking Culture. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional and unceded territory of the Ganyan Gahaga on the land known as Chotiagi. We recognize the Ganyan Gahaga as the rightful stewards of this land. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Talking Culture Season 3, the first full episode. Yes, we're finally kicking it off. Yeah, I am super excited to be here, um, as always, and also to be sharing this episode with all of you. I'm really happy with it. I really think it's a great way to get going with this season's theme. Which, as you all know from last episode, is practice. And you'll keep listening about it. <laughs> we'll keep reminding you that it's practice. <laughs> we will be talking to you about the fact that the theme is practice for months. So, <laughs> yeah, here we go. <laughs> so, uh, Alejandra, do you want to share a little bit about this episode and why you chose the topic to start off the season? Yeah, uh, of course. Um, so, when I was first thinking about the idea of practice thinking through and brainstorming some episode ideas. Um, I was thinking about it in terms of like doing, you know, like to practice is to do something intentionally, for example, like a, a yoga practice or a medical practice. And one of the things that many anthropologists do or practice is ethnography, right? Um, and so because I recently finished my PhD fieldwork, I thought that a reflection on my own fieldwork experience would be a really great place to start. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you literally have just done the traditional anthropological practice, like the most in the ground, what we all aspire to. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, but, you know, as I was writing, as this, hap- this happens so often, um, as I was writing, my idea changed a little bit. I realized that, like, one of the most interesting things about my fieldwork experience was how much my own practices and my participants' practices overlapped. So I decided to kind of, you know, go more in that direction and to explore that. What do you uh, mean that your practices overlap? Well, as you both know, ethnographic film is part of my research methodology, and it's how I practice anthropology. It's part of how I practice anthropology. So a lot of the time while I was in the field, I was filming my research participants, um, and they obviously, being wildlife filmmakers, were filming animals most of the time. So it was like this interesting train of subject being filmed by the subject of another shot. So this interplay of the similarities in what we were physically doing, like what we were practicing, but then also the differences in how we thought about what we were doing made for some really interesting conversations and observations. Um, I don't want to say a whole lot more here, you know, because it's, it's all in the episode, but um, that's pretty much what it's about. You can decide to cut this if you want. I just wanted to react real quick. Um... I mean, I think it's super interesting because I'm imagining sort of this meta-narrative that you're working with because, I don't know, I really like this idea of the film upon film, kind of matryoshka thing. So, no, absolutely. That's, I'm not going to cut this. I'm not going to cut this. That's so interesting that you say that. Like, one of the things that I talk about in the episode is how, like, whenever I talk, tell someone what my research is about or, like, what it is that I do, they're always like, that's so meta. That is really cool. I... Sometimes 
when I, I take pictures, sometimes I don't like to say I'm a photographer necessarily, but I, uh, I occasionally take photos of things. And I guess they're not like family things or, you know, tourist things. So maybe that makes me a photographer because they're pictures of boring <laughs> things. Um, and one of my favorite things to take pictures of is people taking pictures of things. Right. So uh, especially I live in the old port and the tourists. So you take a picture of them and then you have either what they're taking a picture of in the frame or not. Mm. And then they become the, 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 the uh, I guess, the object. Um, and even if you go to a museum, that's one of my favorite things at the museum is you take a picture of people taking pictures of art, which just seems like the oddest thing in the world. Totally, which is adds a whole nother level because it's like this work of this person making a work of a work that's already made. <laughs> um, there is this really amazing ethnographic film that I would definitely recommend to both of you if you're interested in this idea of filming people filming. Um, a huge inspiration for me. It is by the McDougals, um, David and Judith McDougal, I believe. And it's called Photo Wallace. And it is excellent. <laughs> I'm very excited to see how you navigate these um, meta-narratives. And everyone enjoy the listen. I chose this topic for a lot of different reasons. My epiphany moment came while I was sitting in bed watching Planet Earth on Netflix, and all of a sudden my years of anthropological thinking washed over me and I thought to myself, there is a lot going on here. I wonder what that is exactly. I imagine a lot of the anthropologists out there have a similar story. But what grew it from simply a sleepy, late-night idea into an actual project were the intellectual opportunities that it offered. The topic is a perfect combination of my interests as an environmental and media anthropologist, but I was also attracted to the idea of studying people working in a specific industry because I'm interested in looking at human beings based on what they do, their practices rather than their identity. Of course, these things often go hand in hand and they inform and define one another. But to me, thinking about it this way took me one step further away from the colonial and extractivist roots of anthropology. As I deepened my thinking around my project, my own ambitions and practices as an ethnographic filmmaker became more and more relevant as well. So please humor me for a few minutes as I talk about why the connections between natural history and ethnographic film are so interesting. Part of what I'm looking at in my research is the current shift in natural history films. It's a change I noticed as I was watching countless nature documentaries to prepare for the field and that almost all of my research participants brought up in my conversations with them as well. More and more, human beings are being included in the genre as characters in the story. This is due to the industry's sense of responsibility to tackle climate change in what they see as the best way they can, talking about it explicitly on screen. A report published by Silverback, the production house that produced Our Planet, in partnership with the World Wildlife Foundation, claimed that Our Planet's climate messaging succeeded in making a positive impact, reporting that individuals who were exposed to the series were up to 15% more likely to agree with statements regarding their personal responsibility to combat climate change and biodiversity loss than those not exposed to the series. 
I'm not discounting the momentous change that the inclusion of climate change discussions into the genre is. For a long time, it would have been unthinkable for commissioners, that's the companies that commission productions from production houses, to allow even the mention of climate change. However, does the inclusion of environmental politics in these documentaries and series really do enough if the version of nature that they're promoting still primarily represents it from an outside perspective, a nature that is separate from humans? This is where the connection between anthropology and natural history programming comes into play. Of course, anthropologist discussions around nature aren't perfect. Nothing in anthropology is perfect. But we have been discussing the nature-culture divide and the issues attached to a Cartesian way of thinking for years. The fact that the natural history industry has begun exploring this idea so long after anthropology doesn't seem surprising considering their apparent differences. But both industries slash disciplines are rooted in the same history, ultimately a history of colonialism and imperialism. To take you back a little bit, following in the footsteps of Paul Duchayou, the first white man to kill a gorilla in 1955, in the early 1920s, Carl Ackley began leading hunting expeditions into the mountains of what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo to shoot wildlife, and gorillas especially. Ackley was not alone. The same year, the Prince of Sweden left the region after having killed no fewer than 14 gorillas. As the violence of European colonialism spread throughout Africa, the extractivist mentality that destabilized life for the human inhabitants of the continent affected wildlife too, and big game hunting parties became popular forms of entertainment for wealthy Europeans in the places that they were colonizing. Eventually, for Ackley, these parties became about more than just shooting wildlife with guns. He was frustrated with the current camera technology's inability to capture wildlife, and he founded the Ackley Camera Company, which eventually produced the Ackley Camera, a relatively portable camera that was suitable for wildlife photography. And the invention of this camera arguably marks the very beginning of natural history image making. Ackley's photography, and so the roots of natural history documentary in general, can't be separated from the colonial period, which also birthed the modern anthropology in which anthropologists such as Malinowski, Boaz, and Krober all participated. In fact, just one year after Ackley killed the great gorilla known as the Giant of Karasimbi in 1921, Robert Flaherty released Nanook of the North, marking the beginning of the history of ethnographic film. Both Ackley's hunting and his photography of wildlife were done, according to him, in the name of science. In a similar way, in its early focus on the visual aspects of culture, Anthropology also followed the example of natural science's extensive use of images to compile its taxonomies. Anthropology was inspired by zoology, botany, and geology to describe the world visually, and there was a corresponding emphasis upon those aspects of culture that could be drawn or photographed. In focusing on nakedness and animal products such as feathers or bones, anthropological photographs communicated the closeness of their subjects to nature, minimizing the distinction between wildlife and anthropological photography. Early ethnographic films also share a lot of similarities with contemporary natural history documentary. For example, listen to this narration in one of Margaret Mead's early films, Trance and Dance and Bath. The little disciples of the witch dance and prepare to receive the witch's instructions. This is the witch 
in her full supernatural paraphernalia, hairy legs, pendulous breasts, long fingernails. But without the mask that will turn her into a supernatural figure. Beside her is her daughter, who has been rejected by the king of the country. In revenge for the slight to her daughter, she is now training her little novices to spread pestilence and death. Kneeling in front of her, they answer her instructions on how to spread plague. And the next scene shows a pregnant woman among a group of people who have fled their plague-stricken village to wander the roads. This is a birth scene where the pregnant woman, played by a man, gives birth to a child while witches lurk about to steal the newborn child. As the Chris dance that she's describing unfolds and the dancers undergo their trance through a Balinese drama, Mina explains to the viewer what certain individuals are doing, what the ritual clothing, movements, and interactions mean in the tone of straightforward fact. There was nothing artistic about ethnographic film for Mead. This was a matter of science. In her and Gregory Bateson's famous and pretty hilarious conversation on the use of the camera in anthropology, she argues against Bateson's complaints about tripods and his opinion that photographic records should be an art form. She says, I think it's very important, if you're going to be scientific about behavior, to give other people access to the material as comparable and possible to the access you had. You don't then alter the material. There's a bunch of filmmakers now that are saying it should be art and wrecking everything that we're trying to do. Why the hell should it be art? To me, Ethnographic film was an objective, scientific record of culture. The film subjects did not speak for themselves and were instead spoken for by the anthropologist, just as narrators like the English national treasure David Attenborough have become the voice for wildlife. And then, 21 years after Transcendence in Bali, Talal Assad's Anthropology and the Colonial Encounter was published, and 11 years after that, James Clifford and George Marcus's Writing Culture. Both of these books critiqued the aim for an objective anthropological science which mirrored the approaches to research of the natural sciences. Ethnographic film also participated in this move away from the objective in the discipline, a time often referred to as the reflexive turn. In 1982, Judith and David McDougall released their ethnographic film A Wife Among Wives, in which the self-conscious positionality of the time is pretty apparent. The film opens with a series of still images, one of David McDougall holding a camera, another of Judith McDougall among the subjects of the film, and then finally there's an image of a field notebook reminding the viewer that the film they're about to watch is the result of research and filmmaking carried out by two specific anthropologists and from their point of view. 
It's in this moment of change in anthropology that I see a very clear split between the styles of natural history and ethnographic documentary. After this moment of reckoning, ethnographic filmmakers can no longer frame their subjects as objects of science observed by the disinterested and detached anthropologist. But natural history filmmakers didn't move through the same reflexive turn. The subjects of their films, plants, animals, geological phenomena, could still be shot, studied, and explained from a quote-unquote objective point of view. In 2022, these films aren't made with scientific discovery in mind. Commissioned by for-profit corporations such as Disney or Netflix, these are products of entertainment. But they are framed as, and truly often do act as, vectors of science communication for the public. But then, what happens when the subjects of natural history productions and ethnographic film coincide? As we've watched a lot of anthropological inquiry turn its attention to multi-species life, ethnographic films have also contributed to our growing understanding of the planet's entanglements. Maybe one of the most notable in this regard is Lucien Casting-Taylor and Elisa Barbash's 2009 film Sweetgrass, which follows the journey of sheep and sheep herders through the mountains of Montana to summer pasture. The film serves as an excellent example of how filmmakers can communicate and represent non-human life on video. For example, in an early scene, the frame focuses on this one single sheep chewing her food. The shot is 47 seconds long, and this is pretty long, and the length of the shot allows the viewer to understand more about the sheep's reality as she moves from contentedly chewing to then noticing the camera. In the transition, we learn about the sheep's position in her environment, not only through her interaction with her food, but also through her interaction with the filmmaker. So yes, ultimately, the decisions about what to shoot and how to represent the non-humans are human decisions. But in this case, the durational aesthetics of the long shot provide opportunities for the audience to see and also to try to understand the sheep's world. The time, the rhythm of the shot, could only be achieved through this deep ethnographic attention from Casting Taylor, which allowed him to mimic the sheep's rhythm and make its experience in the world understandable to the viewer. Ethnographies like Sweetgrass have moved beyond the self-conscious reflexivity found in A Wife Among Wives, for example, but they have also moved even further away from the early expository ethnographic styles. Sweetgrass does not tell, or honestly make even obvious at all to the viewer, what is significant about the subjects of the film. Instead, it guides the viewer's attention to the intimacies between sheep herders and sheep. The viewer comes to know realities that are not scientific fact, but instead effective, nuanced, and creative unfoldings of a more-than-human world. Natural history, on the other hand, does explicitly tell its audiences what they should think or feel about a particular animal or situation, not only by its human voice of God narration, but also through its editing, coloring, and music choices. I do want to stress that I have an immense amount of respect for what the filmmakers working in the natural history industry do. Their challenge is to create media accurate and informative enough to get people to care about ecological collapse, but entertaining enough to keep them from turning off and simply looking away. And I'm also not arguing here for a complete erasure of the divide between natural history and ethnographic filmmaking. I'm not sure Netflix could sell two full hours of long-shot sheep herding to its audiences, and it is crucial that a wide public watch and learn from these documentaries. But my research with this industry has opened up some questions that I think are really interesting to think with. As so much anthropology moves away from dominant definitions and images of the human, 
What happens if natural history documentary moves away from dominant definitions and images of nature? Where in the middle could we meet? What might we learn from one another? My fieldwork took place during a very exciting moment when the industry is really beginning to change. Everyone I spoke to was asking similar questions, perhaps not directly connected to the similarities between natural history and anthropology, but definitely about what it means to bring human beings into the nature narrative. If I'm being honest, at first I was surprised to hear these ideas that I had naively imagined as fully academic conversations central to my theoretical framework being discussed as matters of course by my participants. It was a humbling step down from my ivory tower. But that is somewhat besides the point. More interesting is the fact that we are both asking these questions at roughly the same time. Though from different perspectives, my participants and I were exploring both similar ideas and through similar mediums. Obviously, what I do is different than what they do. Observing subjects you can talk to and ask clarifying questions to and know where they're going to be and follow them around without them getting scared, more or less is very different than observing and finding animals. But every time I explain to people what I do, they laugh and say, that is so meta. You're observing and filming people, observing and filming animals. It's funny, yes, in a kind of pedantic kind of way, but it also is extremely helpful. I learned so much from everyone in every role. I got so much better at using my camera because I spent every day watching the cinematographers use theirs. I learned shooting techniques as well as how to put a story together, which I'll come back to this shortly. But I believe that I can humbly say that they also learned something from me. There's one moment in particular that stands out. During a shoot filming beavers in the northern U.S., the cinematographer and I were watching back some of the footage that I had taken of the beavers myself. As we watched them swim around in poetic, meditative circles, he told me that I should make sure to let the animals leave the frame more quickly. We discussed my philosophy around rhythm and pacing, and the way in which I was trying to capture a beaverness that requires a very long shot of them swimming in circles without doing much. After that conversation, he told me multiple times how having me around made him think very differently about what he does, and how much of the footage he shoots will be used to tell a very particular kind of story. On a later shoot, I was pleased to watch the same cinematographer spend a significant amount of time shooting the moss that was blowing in the wind off of the branch of an oak tree, a type of shot that was not typical for him and that I recognized as a reflection of the conversations we had been having together. And then I was even more thrilled to watch that shot be put into the episode once I was sitting in the edit. There was definitely a lot to think about in terms of the effect that I was having through my participation in their process. But then where do we go from there? What happens when there are so many similarities between what you and your participants do, but then also so many differences? As I've made clear, I'm mostly interested in creating observational ethnographic film. My inspiration comes from filmmakers like Lucien Casting-Taylor, who I mentioned earlier, and Stephanie Spray. This type of filmmaking is very different than natural history, and I like it that way. Of course, I have critiques of the way storytelling is done in natural history, mostly coming from the why behind their storytelling choices. But now that I'm editing together my own film, I'm finding myself integrating so much of what I learned from them. My story structure is starting to look a lot like the way they structure their sequences and stories. At first, this bothered me because of the critiques that I have of the genre. But I'm starting to come to terms with it because the images themselves are so different 
and so was the type of attention I was paying to the subjects. Now I'm asking myself, what does it mean to integrate my participants' practices into my own? One of my favorite professors that I had during my master's once told me that ethnography was like swimming out to sea. In order to be able to write, at some point you have to swim back. It's important for me to remember to get back to shore. The ethnographic film I'm creating is not a natural history film. The anthropological way of seeing and thinking is important to me. But do you really have to swim all the way back? What if you swim back to a different shore? As I think about what kind of anthropologist I want to be, or how I want to use this PhD in anthropology, I'm thinking about the possibilities, to throw back to last season, of what a combination of anthropology and natural history could look like. That is very exciting to me. This is part of why I'm quite happy with the way that I've approached my research, the way I focus on my participants' practices, what they do. It has allowed me to deeply respect my own practices while equally respecting theirs. It opens up an opportunity to not just study what is, but to think deeply and then, importantly, do what could be. That's it for this week. This episode was produced by me, Alejandro Melian. Music by Justin Kober. Cover art by Sofia Melian. You can find a list of the works cited in this episode in the show notes, as well as on our website, talkingculture.ca. Yo, guys, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and come talk culture with us on Twitter at TalkCulturePod or Instagram at TalkCulturePodcast. The only way to get rid of that is going to be to stop letting me make these because that is just too fun. Anthropology is a practice you can never make perfect.